what we're interested in seeing is the overlap of where commercial is overtaking the military in development of technology. Welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We're brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, coming to you from the windy city of Chicago. On the show this week, we're discussing the latest unmanned military innovations that just so happen to be here in Chicago at AUVSI's Exponential, amongst other news. And I catch up with Matt Smith, Director of Analysis, on the latest findings from Shepherd Plus's Naval Market Report. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. But first, our weekly news roundup from the halls of Exponential in Chicago. And I'm here with Richard Thomas, Editor-in-Chief. Hey. Tim Martin, Senior Reporter. Hi, Helen. To talk about what's caught their eye this week. As I mentioned, we're here at AUVSI's Exponential. So, Tim, what unmanned military news have you gathered here at the world's largest unmanned show? Yes, so I listened in in a panel discussion uh, and which uh, the US Army, US SOCOM and New Zealand Defence Force right. were all involved in. So they were talking about um, how new technologies from the commercial sector could be procured and the opportunities uh, open for the sector itself. And so in particular, the US Army are looking for um, some assistance with small ISR-capable unmanned okay. solutions. And um, they're also going to, in the future, developing prototyping activities for short-range reconnaissance purposes. Nice. Um, so that's quite interesting. Uh, and SOCOM, in particular, were slightly more vague compared to the US Army, but they said that um, they're looking for um, controllers, throwaway robotics, and stuff that's uh, cryptic and encrypted. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, quite uh, interesting because they're um, arguably their missions are more varied mm-hmm. and... There's a different uh, set of requirements there. <laughs> Excellent. Did uh, did the economics of it all come up at all? The cost or? Uh, no, there really was no mention of it. So it was interesting. Uh, yeah, in itself. I know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think maybe that's because um, they were skirting around that issue at, right. at, at then, you know. Um, so they they were effectively upset industry, I guess. Potentially, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a, a flavour of things. Um, well, I'll just give you a, a, sort of a quote from the US SOCOM spokesperson, Please. which was um, that he, he hears a lot about um, buzzwords like AI, and he mm-hmm. sees a, you know great capability and platform growth, but he says, I need an operator in the loop at all facets of the battle space. Right now, I don't need only something that's capable of flying. Strong words, then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Um, I caught up with Collins Aerospace this week on the show floor and they were telling me about a recent milestone achievement with the company's avionics system ProLine Fusion. Now for those of you who don't know about ProLine Fusion, it's a system that manages, monitors and masters flight automation within that technology suite. Now in March of this year, 
Collins Aerospace told me that this system is integrated in General Atomics ground control system and was used in the first complete takeoff to landing flight of the UK MOD's MQ9B Sky Guardian remote patrol aircraft in civil airspace. Now, the ProLine Fusion is civil certified, which appealed greatly to the MOD, Collins Aerospace told me. Richard, from air to sea, have you got some naval news for us that's taken place at Exponential this week? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's been a, a couple of things that's probably worth highlighting, setting an interesting briefing from, uh, from Captain Pete Small, who's uh, the programme manager for the US Navy's Unmanned Systems Development Programmes. And he obviously talks about the development and, and utilisation of unmanned maritime systems as the service moves from what he said is the information age to a collaboration age, to where machine manned teaming operations are par for the course. Um, the US Navy is going by um, a document detailed, the design for maintaining maritime supremacy, and that's a 2.0 version. It's an evolution of an early document, which itself has been born out of the um, the 2018 uh, National Security Strategy document that uh, the then uh, US Secretary of State for Defence, Jim Mattis, presented. Anyway, so this document's basically trying to, well, it outlined that the US uh, forces and US Navy, obviously, has to realign its, its operations from uh, counterinsurgency operations and small-scale um, uh, manoeuvres to uh, peer or near-peer conflicts. And to do this, the US Navy is looking to, to leverage unmanned maritime systems um, both currently and in future. They're looking for large USVs, medium USVs, um, extra-large UVs. Of course, Boeing won that contract. Uh, that's the Orca US Navy contract. Uh, right down to small UVs, um, such as the Knifefish and other kind of things, things like that. Um, on the, 20, the 25th, actually, so a few days ago, 25th of April, the US Navy issued what I thought was an RFP. It's actually not quite as far as that. It's a solicitation. So it's, it's moved the, the solicitation along for a medium USV um, a little bit. Uh, the requirements are still being figured out, but they expect an RFP to be issued within, I guess, the next one to two months, something like that. Now, this system will provide the distributed sensing capability um, to uh, work alongside the large USV, which is planned, which will provide the distributed lethality capability. Um, just a couple of things in, in uh, closing. Small had a, a point to make, I think, about the logistics effort that goes along with maintaining an unmanned fleet. Obviously, the US Navy and every other Navy that's ever been born is has based its logistics around uh, manned ships, obviously, which may or may not have a different set of requirements to unmanned ships. So a question whether the US Navy's uh, the fleet bases and uh, supporting assets would be able to sustain unmanned fleet or unmanned fleets, plural, into the future. Um, just a final one, if, if I can. I sat in on uh, another uh, maritime-themed um, briefing uh, on automated ships. Uh, we had uh, representatives from Kongsberg Maritime, the private sector, and uh, a representative from Huntington Ingalls Industries. You're just generally talking about the, the sort of the move towards greater automation among ships and shipping. Um, an interesting point that they wanted to bring up was if you've got an unmanned system, a small unmanned system at sea somewhere doing its operation, um, what's going to protect that from being picked up by, I'll say, a fisherman, but maybe, let's say, um, a Chinese fisherman instead, as happened a, a year or two back in the Asia-Pacific region. I think that was a Slocum glider that was, uh, that was nipped. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, an interesting point to make that um, they said perhaps while one system is out sensing, another, another system or systems would be, have to be nearby potentially protecting. Um, yeah, worth thinking about. 
Thanks, Richard. For these stories and more from our global network of reporters, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com. Coming up on the podcast, we speak to Kieran Joyce, who is Programme Manager for Unmanned Aerial Systems at the Australian Army, about their need for a new UAV and the benefits of drone racing. But first, I caught up with Shepherd's Director of Analysis, Matt Smith, on the latest Naval Vessels Report. We wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering, which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers across the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions. Whether it is support of a particular campaign, content surrounding a major trade show or bringing Studio on board to more effectively tell a company story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes. If you're interested in learning more about studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at www.shepherd.studio. I am here with Shepherd's Director of Analysis, Matt Smith. Hi, Matt. Hi, Helen. Now, the Plus team is about to release the Naval Vessels forecast. So to kick off, Matt, with any forecast, numbers are key. So how big is this market? It's a good question, Helen. As you said, it's the uh, probably the, the main thing that everybody's interested <laughs> yeah. in when they first pick up the report. Well, it's a big market. You know, we're looking at some big numbers here. Uh, 2019, 77 billion across the world. Across the whole 10-year forecast, uh, it's $843 billion. But what's interesting about it is that while spending is consistent across the period, it isn't really growing that much. Uh, so we're seeing the spend staying at about that level across the full period. And we think there's a few reasons for this. Uh, firstly, it's a, it's a very mature marketplace. The programmes tend to take, particularly larger ones, a number of years to progress, particularly in these kind of larger, more advanced categories. There's also a number of very large programmes that are already in play. And so funding for those are, has already been committed. So mm-hmm. that is, if you like, already been um, assigned. Ships are getting more capable, but they're also getting more expensive. Uh, and the impact of this is that we see fewer ships being procured to meet the same kinds of requirements. And that has a kind of a balancing effect. So the amount of money being spent doesn't actually change. Usually mm-hmm. it's just the, the balance of where it's being spent uh, is impacted. We're also seeing some navies, like Malaysia, looking to consolidate the number of ships they have. So Malaysia, for example, has, I think, in the region of 15 different classes. They're looking to shrink that down to five. Wow. And that really, as, as, you, as you can imagine, uh, has a big impact on the number of vessels being procured. Um, but it also impacts on uh, operation operational costs uh, throughout the, the life of the programme. And even when there's a commitment to growing naval fleet sizes, like we're seeing in the U.S., it's it's unlikely that the ambitions we're going to match the, um, the the reality is as the cost growth within programs tends to overtake the um, the initial projections. So across the piece, you know, we're seeing these kind of um, issues around. While there's an ambition to grow, the actual reality is that um, cost factors mean that um, overall things will remain static. And I guess which sectors are you seeing growth in? Generally, it's in the smaller classes and in some specialist capabilities. So when we did our analysis, we saw that we were finding growth in mine hunters, 
uh, landing platform docks and amphibious assault. Now, those are three really interesting categories. Um, so for mine hunters, what we think is driving that is a fear of air de- area denial type tactics. Okay. So if you can imagine the situation what we've, that we've just discussed with um, fewer ships that cost more money, if you have an asymmetric kind of capability like a mine, which is a low-cost way of disabling a much higher-cost uh, capability, then that is obviously attractive to vet- to navies that are looking to uh, control bits of the sea that otherwise they would not be able to do so. I mean, one way of looking at it, they are like the IED of the seas. Um, in the other sectors, lying platform docks and amphibious assault, what we think is that's reflecting is a desire to, de- to develop more of a power projection capability, particularly around South Asia and Asia. The countries where we're seeing growth, and we'll probably come on to this, um, are uh, China and, um, mm. and, and India, both those countries have a clear interest in being able to project power beyond what they currently do. Uh, and that's where we're seeing a lot of the growth in those sectors. I guess then, um, following on from that, Mac, can you share with us who is spending the most? I think we've probably all got our own preconceptions of this. but Well, absolutely. And I, I don't think it would come a surprise to anybody to know that uh, the US is the by far and away the biggest spender. Looking at our forecast, we see around $290 billion dollars being spent over the next 10 years uh, and interestingly from the point of view of suppliers around 111 billion of that has yet to be awarded so there's obviously massive opportunity there assuming of course you can meet the requirements of the US customer. On the other end of the spectrum we've got China rapidly capping up, catching up with uh, America particularly in terms of fleet sizes but spending is around about half of, of what we're seeing in the US um, about 123 billion over the period. Now, we don't know, um, if we're being completely honest, how much of that has yet to be awarded. But the reality of the situation is that that investment is going to go towards Chinese companies. The next kind of rung of spending, uh, we're looking at Russia and, and India. And India is probably one of the, the most interesting countries because it represents probably the largest open opportunity, if you like, for, from a global perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the next on the list of number five is uh, is the UK. Interestingly, so um, despite uh, uh, I suppose our, our constant dilemmas and, uh, and and worrying about defence spending, on the naval side of things, mm. uh, the UK remains uh, starting at the, at the in the second tier of nations with forecast spend of around forty forty one billion dollars uh, over the period. And if you had to pinpoint, I mean, what is driving this spending? Well, it, it all goes back to China, really. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that. Um, but obviously, we all know, you know China is looking to invest in its, uh, in its blue water capability, which clearly is driving Chinese spending, but it also has a full-on impact across the world. The reaction in America has been one of, well, if China's doing it, we need to stay ahead. Mm-hmm. And that's driving their long-term forecast, uh, sorry, long, their long-term shipbuilding plan. Within the region itself, there's also a renewed interest in at least being able to um, to match or compete uh, with uh, with their uh, emerging re- uh, rivals, so that kind of dynamic is really the one that's fueling that that growth. And we mentioned India earlier on, and that's really what's driving India as well is that desire not to be outdone by their um, their, their neighbours, and also retain what is a crucial access to their routes to market and their strategic waters. Talking about competition there, but I guess most of our listeners and myself are quite interested in where these opportunities are. So as, as we just mentioned, um, India, um, we're looking at nearly $24 billion worth of unawarded spending. It's got a very clear plan to 
support its indigenous uh, defence manufacturing capability. And as we know, India has struggled in the past to sort of marry those two together, the the, the desire to create an industrial base of its own, but also to actually get programmes out on time and on budget. So Mm -hmm. although the numbers there are very large, I think there's a historical awareness that perhaps it's not always been the easiest market to access. Staying within Asia, uh, Taiwan um, and South Korea, both are potentially attractive markets. Taiwan's worth about 10 billion and uh, South Korea 7 billion we think. And then further down the sort of the pipeline you're really looking towards the the big European countries so Germany, Turkey and France and Poland. They all have substantial programs uh, that have yet to be awarded. A little bit further afield Latin America seems sort of a small overall um, but there is a significant opportunity in Brazil uh, with the Tamandari class uh, frigate uh, sorry uh, corvette um, the Brazilian navy's i think selected four out of possible nine contenders for this is worth about 1.6 billion dollars uh, and currently it's uh, Thyssen Group um Diamond Saab Nav- Naval Group and Fincantieri Leonardo who are um, sort of competing for that one of the interesting things that we sort of picked up at um, LAD a few weeks ago was... In Brazil. In Brazil, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there was a big naval presence there, larger than perhaps we'd anticipated. But there were almost no Chinese manufacturers there. Okay. Uh, it was all the European and, and Turkish companies. So I think that is reflective of perhaps who's looking to compete in those markets at the moment. So there you have it. That's the lowdown on the naval vessels forecast that's been brought to you by Shepherd Plus. On a final point, though, Matt, can you share with us how this uh, forecast can be accessed? Yeah, thanks, Helen. So um, the report's available uh, from the 7th of May. Uh, You can access it through uh, our subscriptions team. That's subscriptions at shepherdmedia.com. And also we'll be promoting it at Index, which takes place in Singapore from the 13th of May onwards. I'm here with Richard Thomas, our editor-in-chief. Now, Richard, I understand you've got a very special offer for our listeners. Yeah, that's right, Helen. Um, as, as, we, as we all know, um, nowadays journalism comes at a price, as, as it should. And much of our original news content is only available to our subscribers, uh, including much of what we talk about on this podcast. But we are offering an exclusive discount to listeners as a small reward for supporting the podcast and using the code PODCAST50, that's uppercase, Listeners can get a 50% off a premium news subscription to provide the access to all the news and analysis from the team here. Thanks, Richard. So to take advantage of this offer, head to subscriptions.shepherdmedia.com, sign up for the premium news service and use the discount code CAPSLOCK, PODCAST50 for a half-price annual subscription. So I'm here um, at the sidelines of AUVSI Exponential in Chicago. Uh, This is the main unmanned vehicle show sort of for the year in the US, um, which covers both commercial systems as well as military. Um, I'm sitting down with Karen Joyce, who's the program manager for unmanned aerial systems for the Australian Army. Karen, thanks for your time today. G'day, Tony. Thank you for the invitation. So just to sort of kick things off, um, maybe for those listeners that aren't as familiar with the Australian Army um, and the, the sort of type of platforms you operate, what are men's, or what, what, which UAVs platforms do you currently have in the portfolio? We've spent a couple of years now really building up the portfolio. We've been experimenting for a long time and we've now achieved a position where we're, we're very happy to say we're the biggest, most experienced and safest user of drones in Australia. 
across our fleet. We'll start at the smallest end with the Black Hornet. The Black Hornet is a nano unmanned aerial system. We've rolled this out to every combat platoon in the Australian Regular Army. So every infantry platoon, every cavalry troop is now equipped with this. And then there's some sideline users as well, like Engineer Recon, Special Operations... That's a, a big program. We're the biggest user in the world at the moment of the Black Hornet, uh, 161 systems across the entire army. That project's actually finished now. Um, we've achieved final operating capability for that, and it's a very exciting program. The young soldiers are very excited about having this equipment in their hands. For the, for the listeners that aren't familiar with it, it's a, it's a very small hold-it-in-your-palm-of-your-hands type sort of nano UAS, and you guys were the first army in the world to operate that level of UAS down to the platoon level, is that right? Correct. Um, We experimented for a couple of years, like many other armies around the world. We bought small quantities and rolled them out to special operations and to some trials units to see just how much we liked it. We decided that we did, and last year we rolled it out as the the lead customer for the Black Hornet 3. So how is the nano UAS operated? I mean, it's a very obviously personal... ISR type sort of platform. So, so how, the, how are the platoons employing the uh, the Black Hornet? So, the platoon commander and the platoon sergeant they pick a couple of their more tech savvy soldiers in the platoon, um, and they are put through a five day training course and taught all the way up to tactical employment of the system. The platoon commander or the platoon sergeant, whenever they want a quick view of something or a look around the corner, look over the hill, to enable them to make better decisions, to enable them to make a faster mission execution. They simply call up their Black Hornet operator to stand next to them, or to sit, lie next to them, fly the mission. It's not an interconnected system. The the operator literally holds out the battle tablet that they can see the imagery of, shows the boss, says, hey boss, is that what you wanted to see? Yes, no. They do some confirmation, they bring the aircraft home and they carry on and, and, uh, and execute the mission. It's, it's very exciting technology. It enables a platoon commander to get eyes on target uh, whenever they want. And beyond the Black Hornet, if we sort of go up the scale, um, what, what other platforms are you guys currently operating? The next system is the combat team system that we have. We, uh, we use the WASP AE from Air Environment. That's the same system that US Marine Corps use. We are halfway through that program rollout that's under land 129 phase 4 alpha. That is rolling out progressively over three years, a total of 69 systems across Australian Army Combat Team Force. We have finished uh, SOCOM, uh, Special Operations Command got their systems last year, and this year we're in the middle of rolling that out to our combat brigade. So every combat team, every company, Every infantry company, every uh, cavalry squadron uh, will get this capability to get a five-kilometre range system. And then beyond, um, beyond that system, you know, what do you have sort of further at the tactical level? And at the top we have the workhorse. So the Shadow 200 we bought seven years ago now uh, through a foreign military sales case for uh, interoperability with the United States Army. We deployed that straight to Afghanistan. We bought two systems. We're not a huge user. We only have three combat brigades, so two systems is a, is a good quantity for Australia. We plussed it up with some extra equipment to make sure that we could meet the Australian concept of operation. 
but uh, but yeah, it's been a, an absolutely outstanding piece of equipment, but it's already getting old, and uh, we have a project running now to replace that system. So I guess many of the listeners, you know, are from the defence industry themselves. So I guess they're, they're, I imagine they're quite keen to hear about that replacement program. So what are you looking for, and what's kind of the key requirements that you're you're sort of asking industry for? The project that we're running for that one is Land One Two Nine Phase Three. It, uh, if you're familiar with Australian acquisition process, we're at gate one, so we're, we're halfway through the project acquisition cycle at the moment. We released a industry paper at the Avalon Air Show a couple of months ago and had some really detailed industry solicitation and engagement there. It was, uh, it was very good. Some of the key things that we're looking for is runway independence. Shadow requires a runway that has proven to be too constraining to our operational concepts. So we're looking for runway independence. We are also looking for tighter uh, interconnectivity and, and integration, and we want that integrated into our protected mobility vehicle fleet. So some of the other things that we've learned from seven years' worth of shadow ops is that we want a faster sensor-to-shooter link and that we want to be able to provide our operators some protected mobility so that they can keep pace with the, with the combat brigade that they've got, uh, that they're in support of. Mm-hmm. At that industry engagement day, we, we had one of our latest variants of our Bushmaster protected mobility vehicle there on display, so... All of those companies could get a real feel for what the computing systems are on board and what we're looking for. That integration that we're after is, you know, in a nutshell, we want our ground control station to be able to talk to our battle management system. We want it to talk to our joint fires system. So, uh, so that's AFATADS and to Link 16. And we want to be able to be able to do... Uh, intelligence analysis, because one of the other things that we're really after is a multi-intelligence payload capability. So it's not good enough to just fly electro-optics anymore. Uh, we want more advanced payloads on board, like synthetic aperture radar, electronic warfare, as examples. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to sort of unpack some of that, the, the runway independence bit, would that sort of imply a, a VTOL UAV with perhaps a fixed-wing kind of elements, or would you be looking at a, a, perhaps a launcher system to kind of get that runway independence? We haven't wedded ourselves to a specific flight profile yet. Sure. What yeah. we have decided is that we want to step away from runways. Um, one of the challenges that we have is that the places we go and the places that we operate from don't always have the ability to put down a runway. Sure. Uh, that includes amphibious operations for the Australian Army because we are expected to operate to and from our landing helicopter dock ships as well. So we've been talking with industry and what we want to see is innovative pitches from industry when we go to tender. The tender will be released later this year per the schedule. Uh, we want to see innovative ways that they think we can do launch and recovery operations that are runway independent from a range of profiles, including amphibious shipping and uh, and manoeuvre operations in the battle space. And just in terms of that, the rest of the timeline, when would you be looking to, to get a platform uh, procured and in service? So our timeline at the moment, as we briefed uh, at the industry day, is uh, tender will be released later this year. Uh, we will choose our selected tenderer next year for first systems 2021-22 financial year for an initial operating capability 23-24.
And I know that, um, yeah, you said the, the deployment to Afghanistan was, was several years ago now, but, you know, obviously a real-world deployment is, is good in terms of those lessons learned. So, so what was the experience like when you, when you did have it in, sort of in, in Afghanistan itself? The experience in Afghanistan has actually driven us to a lot of the decisions that we're striving towards for Land 129 Phase 3. Things like the sensor to shooter loop um, are a really good case study for us to talk about. In Afghanistan, we were able to plug into a joint task force network so that the imagery that we were collecting off shadow could undergo second and third level processing, exploitation and dissemination. In this case, that was done by the Singaporean Air Force in that joint task force. Um, we were able to plug into a joint fires network with AFATADs with the US Army. Um, those kind of examples that, you know, if you're in a peacetime construct, it's nice to be able to do the systems engineering and prove those concepts, but it's not until you get into an operational environment that you really see the benefit of those things. And that's uh, cemented a lot of our decisions for what we're striving towards for Phase 3 for the replacement program. One of the things that we haven't done with Shadow is be able to tie up into Link 16 to do digital close air support. Um, US Marine Corps had a go at that with Shadow uh, a couple of years ago with their Naval Unified Targeting System. That is a proof of concept. It never got onto the program of record, but we certainly are striving towards it for our program. And I guess just uh, just wanted to ask you about uh, drone racing. And I know you guys, you've got an event called the Military International Drone Racing Tor- Tournament, uh, which is held in, in Sydney, Victoria Barracks. You know, what is that event and, and what's kind of the idea behind getting into the sort of drone racing itself? We identified that our soldiers were already drone racing. Okay. Um, this was about two years ago. And the first reason we got into drone racing was to support our soldiers. Um, not every soldier wants to play rugby or cricket or footy these days. Um, our soldiers, the, the current generation of soldiers, they're interested in drone racing, they're interested in cyber sports, they're interested in e-sports, a range of new hobbies. So we wanted to support them in their after-hours activities. What we found very quickly, though, was that this was a very technical sport. Um, you know, each one of these drone racers, they build their own drones, they learn how to solder, code, data links, they make their own videos, they know about radio frequencies and deconfliction and programming. These are all technical skills that we want in the current and future generations of the Defence Force. So we identified that there was a secondary spin-off of a recruiting and a STEM engagement uh, outcome. We also found out that we are there were other nations around the world that were also standing up drone racing teams. Uh, our, our, our chief collaborator uh, is the British team and we hashed out a concept for an international drone racing tournament. We threw that together pretty quickly. That happened in October last year. Um, because of the speed of it, not all of those nations could get their travel approved. Um, but in the end, we got Australia, New Zealand, England, the UAE and Thailand. Uh, come down to Sydney for a uh, for a racing tournament, and it was fabulous. Um, the The outcomes that you would normally expect of defence sport, collaboration, teamwork, uh, cutthroat competitiveness was all there. Uh, it was quite a fabulous event, and we're looking forward to the next one. The Brits are trying to get uh, uh, MIDRT number two uh, approved at the moment to be hosted in England. I did want to ask you also perhaps about the show itself. As you're wandering around, I mean, there's a big hall upstairs. You know, there's hundreds of vendors here. 
um, beyond you know your immediate kind of requirements for for new platforms, what kind of things will you be looking out for as you sort of wander the horse? That's a really cool question, actually, Tony. This is the one conference we come to internationally every year. Um, it is it's the biggest. But what I really like about it is the fusion of commercial and military applications. What we're interested in seeing is the overlap of where commercial is overtaking the military in development of technology. And we've seen it the last couple of years already uh, in coming to the AUVSI Exponential Conference. Things like commercial application of sensor technology that is moving faster than the military can do it. Uh, Thinking outside the box with uh, communications networks and bearers, uh, also something that commercial is moving faster than the military can do. We're excited about those. From a platform perspective, our two big exciting uh, concepts that we're working on at the moment, uh, and they'll probably be no, no surprise to people in the industry, are logistics UAVs. Why would I use a $40 million helicopter to take uh, Class 135 around the battlefield if I can do that with a robot at a fraction of the price? And the other one that we find uh, really interesting is high-altitude pseudo-satellites. So if our satellites were to be denied to us by a threat force, how can we replicate those satellite technologies with an unmanned aerial system and looking at ultra-long endurance platforms that are out there at the moment that can provide hundreds of kilometres worth of coverage of uh, electronic systems is very interesting to us. And a lot of that has distinct overlaps with the commercial fields. You know, e-taxis are logistics UAVs for the military. And uh, and the companies that are developing um, localised LTE and 4 and 5G bubbles for the middle of nowhere with a high-altitude pseudo-satellite, they're exactly the same systems that we're looking to do with re- with military uh, electronic systems. So that overlap and the fusion is really exciting. That's what that's what I'll be keeping my eye out for this week. Sure. I guess um, for somebody who's made the, the development of UAVs um, a big part of their career, um, it's going to be like a pretty big toy shop up, upstairs. So um, enjoy the next few days and thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Dane. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice. Uh, This is the part of the show that is brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Namo. Uh, I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here from Shipper Media. And I'm joined by our regular contributor, Andre Lons, who is the SVP of Communications for Namo. Hi, Tony. So on the menu today is we're looking at a new report that's been released by CIPRI, which is the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Correct. Um, for those listeners that aren't familiar with that organization, it's the, the main body that tracks global spending. Um, and they have some incredible resources on their, their website. And they just released a, um, their latest report for 2018. So mm-hmm. um, I know, Andre, you've, you've been sort of diving into this to, to pull out what some of the takeaways were. So, so you know, what, what were some of the key trends that we're seeing? Well, I think it's interesting to look at uh, a little bit which regions, what countries are going up, going down in terms of expenditure. And perhaps not surprising that the two biggest ones continues to be U.S. and China. And as uh, Cipri says, that the higher level of uh, world military expenditure in 2018 is mainly a result of a significant increase in spending by these two countries. 
so China and U.S. continuing to drive uh, the growth in military spending. And uh, from the numbers they've released, it looks like we're right now in 2018 saw the highest number of military expenditure at any point since uh, the end of the Cold War. That's surprising. You know, that's incredible, really. Yes, it is indeed. And we're looking at numbers that are more than 75% up from the low point after Cold War in 1998. So it's uh, significantly Mm -hmm. increased. But again, it's the US and China driving. Uh, China has nearly 10 times the military expenditure in constant dollars compared to what they had uh, just 25 years ago. So there is some really, really significant increases. Mm -hmm. So beyond those two, you know, major powers uh, increasing their spending, you know, where else were, were some of the increases sort of seen? I mean, I guess the anecdotally, it's always been Asia Pacific mm-hmm. that's um, that, that seeing that you know the, the growth over the last sort of several years. So I mean, I guess I, I think that trend is is, is continuing. I, absolutely. Uh, so as the report indicates, military expenditure in Asia and Oceania has gone up every year since 1988. So uh, it's. Uh, significant increase uh, in, across Asia, not just in China. You have India, uh, you have South Korea that continues to drive uh, growth as well. And uh, I think that's a trend that doesn't show any signs of stopping. Uh, what's interesting also, you look at um, Europe, you see some increases in Eastern Europe, uh, though uh, Western Europe are uh, pretty much stable still. Uh, but if you look at uh, from the Middle East perspective, uh, work towards the Middle East. You have Turkey that is boosting quite significantly their uh, military spending. Uh, and in the Middle East, you have countries that have very high defense burdens. I mean, many of the top 10 countries in terms of uh, percentage of GDP are all in the Middle East. And uh, mm-hmm. But you're seeing that some of them are, are the big those that are cutting the most in real terms. So CIPRI is tracking a reduction on real expenditure by Saudi Arabia uh, from 17 till 18 of $4.6 billion. And they're still in the top five, uh, and they are still among the highest in terms of uh, percent of GDP. So um, I don't think that's these are not major growth markets in a sense, but they're still very big spenders. I guess one trend to point out at this point is the fact that Russia's been knocked out of the, the top five. Indeed. Um, it's now the, the sixth biggest spender. Indeed, overtaken by France. So uh, that's showing that their expenditure is also flattening a bit. And I think a lot of countries that are very oil-dependent economies, ever since 2014, they've, they've struggled in, in maintaining uh, high military expenditure. So just to bring this sort of back to a defense industry context, how how much are you guys able to plan some of your strategic sort of moves based on you know which countries are increasing spending, um, or is the the international picture you know slightly more complex than that? Yes, definitely more complex than that. I mean, this is an interesting sort of macro trend looking at where expenditure is going, and that's more like looking at very long term what what that's going to mean for the market. But in more shorter term, uh, these budgetary increases are not necessarily going to impact much on at least for, should we say, NATO plus uh, defense industry. For our terms, many of these markets that are growing heavily are not readdressable, uh, unsurprisingly. I mean, China is not really, you can't really play both in the U.S. and China. Uh, and I think uh, 
a lot of the increases we're seeing in some of these markets are not on uh, procurement. Uh, some of them are on uh, readiness. Some are in personnel. Uh, it's in terms of uh, training, operations. These things drive costs just as much as procurement does. Uh, and I think some of the, I think mm-hmm. we addressed this previously as well, some of the major uh, programs that are coming into fruition now have been planned for quite a while. But what we're, uh, what we're seeing, on the other hand, and we spoke about this in our annual report that we re- released last week, is that uh, a lot of countries are looking for uh, material and for technology that can help boost performance of existing systems uh, because there is a return towards, should we say, great power competition and towards uh, high-intensity conventional uh, peer-on-peer warfare, uh, but without any major budget increases on the procurement side to uh, fund that change. So they're looking for something that can help boost the performance of existing systems in terms of range, precision, uh, effects in target. And more than anything, mm-hmm. I think that's something uh, in industry should be focusing on. Uh, these are macro trends that are interesting, and I think it uh, says something about uh, where the uh, political environment is moving. But industry would not get that much out of chasing these numbers uh, specifically. Certainly, uh yeah, there's lots of detail in the reports. You know, having having said that, and you know, we, we appreciate you, the time you've taken to, to dive into it and pull out some of those trends for us. In the meantime, Andres, thanks for your time. Thank you. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Namo. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening. 